welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. We endeavour, and have so far, kept up our promise to bring you one episode a week for what will be coming up to almost two years. Crazy. If you enjoy them and fancy making a contribution to the upkeep of what does take a bit of time, you can do via our podcast page on the website. And don't forget, if you're listening to us on Apple, iTunes, give us a review, take a bit of time to review us. Equally, we appreciate your feedback in any form or fashion, or if you've got any guests you want us to interview, don't hesitate to let us know. I established the podcast to encourage debate and showcase different perspectives on yoga on and off the map, and all things attached immediately or otherwise to yoga, basically to encourage debate, discussion, thinking in life generally. Anyway, in the absence of any guests today, I thought I'd bring to you the first half of the online Ashtanga Symposium I put together with Eddie Stern in the summer. The title was Ashtanga Yoga and Beyond. And we did it in two halves, so today I'll leave you with the first half featuring some fantastic contributions from many well-known teachers. Figures in the Ashtanga world you probably already know. It was an incredibly well-received event, and I think it was a lot to do with the timing. It felt like an apposite juncture, an apposite time, with much, much water under the bridge in terms of thoughts about tradition, modifications, role of the teacher, notions of teacher as guide, or teacher as more than that, even a guru. Seems like a time to enter into thoughtful reflection and appraisal of how best to go forward and together, especially with the recent seismic shift online that we have all had no, no choice but to engage with. So indeed, as we are getting to appreciate, if we are to continue to grow and evolve in this community, this movement will come from a discussion and the willingness to listen to different perspectives and the openness to learn and embrace change if this needs be but always and most principally as a community, as one, as a tolerant body, an inclusive group of people who will love this method of self-inquiry and this style of living. So without further ado, let's hear the episode. I hope you enjoy it. And part two will be coming over the forthcoming weeks. Just a, you know, before we start, a very big thank you to all of you for doing this. Honestly, we don't know what we're doing, but we thought it'd be fun to gather together and talk about some stuff, and uh, especially, so uh, especially uh, gather people together who, um, you know, who haven't met before and come from different generations and from different places and stuff like that. So um, that's the idea, and um, we're really excited that you're all here with us. So, peace. Break a leg, good luck, have fun, and um, we get started. You want to let him in, Adam, or do you want me to? Just before we start, like, um, so what we're going to do is give everyone time to speak in their question, but then I'm going to try and facilitate some interaction between us. But because of Zoom, you know, and the time delay, that's that could be hard. So I reckon let's probably mute ourselves and then raise our hand physically or, or in the the icon right and then i can go around and, and parlay you know between you is that all right yeah i'm hoping that it's not just going to be ask a question answer answer after you know we can have some chat here you know all right okay so let's let people in and uh let's start okay. and ellie will introduce it and ellie will introduce it and then i'll uh, I'll, I'll ask the questions okay Thanks. here we go shri ganesha namaha
So welcome to everyone who is currently signing in. Give about a minute or two to let all the folks sign in and then we will get started. Hello, Amy Echo. Yeah, you're welcome to write things in the chat box. Obviously, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's a kind of disembodied audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let us know where you're signing in from. Yeah, yeah. any, any other comments that you might wish to add? Oh, London. Also, they want to see your names because we don't see the names currently. We just see the numbers increasing. So, yeah. yep. And uh, we should probably add in countries of where everyone is here in the panel as well. Mark, are you guys in Bali right now? You're in Bali. Cool. Yeah, we're in Bali. Not East London, that's a very specific definition. Totally. Yeah. Danny, you're in um in uh Rio right now. Yes, I'm in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> Sounds exotic. Always <laughs> David, you're in, in Austin right now? Or are you in Brooklyn? I'm in Austin, Texas. Right on. The spiritual hub of the world. I know. It's where you know, <laughs> all things converge. Dimitri, you're in Moscow? Yeah. It's uh, yeah, still, still there. Good. Wambui, Helsinki? Yep, still here. Right on. Tara, where are you? Yes, in Italy, still transitioning. Okay. Yeah. Where, in, where in Italy? In Sicily. Sicily. Nice. Chandana, where are you at? I'm in Pune. Hey, nice. The dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the 16th floor and the dogs are like, yeah, it's all out. <laughs> Adam, I can't rename you. That's all right. Don't worry. Okay, cool. You're just all over. Um, should we start or should we wait a few more minutes? Uh, I think that we should um, go ahead and begin. All right. Okay. Okay. Okay, ready? Good. Oh, well, let's go ahead and chant a short opening prayer. Everybody knows this.
think we can all chant this together. Vande Guru Nam Charanaravinde Sandarshita Swatma Sukhava Budhe Nishreyase Jangali Kayamane Samsara Hala Halamuha Shantyai Abhahu Purushakaram Shankachakrasi Dharinam Sahasrashirasamshwetam Pranamami Patanjalim Om Tatsat Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, Adam and I are thrilled to be here with you all. Um, we would especially like to thank all of, I don't want to call them panelists, all of our friends and colleagues and brothers and sisters. Um, David Swenson, who um, has been uh, leading the way in the Ashtanga Yoga world since the 1970s. And Danny Saw and Rio and my good friend Dimitri in Moscow and Chandana and Puna. Tara and Sicily, Wambui in Helsinki and Mark and Deepika in Bali. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful group of people who have been dedicating themselves to this practice and its teachings like many of you who are joining us today. One of the ideas that Adam and I had behind this gathering was to collect a intergenerational and diverse group of people from all around the world to talk about important issues, um, their feelings and thoughts and ideas of things that are occurring in our yoga world and the larger yoga world, um, and uh, address it in a way which is relevant to the time we are in now, 2021. Uh, as well as perhaps looking a little bit back towards where we came from. Um, as Adam has said, uh, one important way of understanding how we need to direct our path towards the future is to understand what our past has been. Um, and so there's been a lot of self-reflection which has occurred in the Ashtanga Yoga community over the past couple of years. Um, but of course, more needs to be done and self-reflection is an ongoing part of yoga known as Swadhyaya. So we will self-reflect, we'll discuss, um, this will be an engaging discussion. And, um, you know, we want you all to feel like uh, you're sitting with us in a living room and we're hanging out talking about things that are important to us. Uh, I want to just add one other thing as we begin um, the discussion today, that, um, you know, as yoga practitioners, Practitioners, we're all very concerned with how we can create a more just society for ourselves and for the people who live in them, um, establish equitable opportunities for people, celebrate diversity, be very conscious about inclusivity, um, share prosperity, and, and invest in ways um, to help all people um, accomplish the things they need to do in their lives. So I, I think that we all share these values and others um, as well. Um, we've been thoughtful about inclusivity and about a variety of voices for these talks. Um, but I also want to add that today is June 19th in America. This is called Juneteenth. 
And this is a very important day, a deeply important day um, in the abominable history of slavery in America. In 1863, on January 1st, uh, Lincoln had the Emancipation Proclamation um, begin in full effect. Is that the slaves, there were 3 million slaves in America at that time who were all free. Uh, it took two and a half years for that news to reach Texas. Um, the Civil War was ending. There were communication delays and perhaps other things that were occurring as well that prevented this news from getting to Texas. And um, when it did, two and a half years later, it was on June 19th. And so June 19th is celebrated um, as the one of the very important days for the ending of slavery in America. However, we still have um, systematic and systemic oppression and racism and lack of opportunities for Black people and Latino people and Indigenous people in this country. So uh, this year, President Biden has signed the Juneteenth as a, into effect as a federal holiday. So it's officially recognized now as a national day to commemorate the end of slavery. Um, but probably more importantly, it's a day of of important reflection for this country to remember what has occurred here. Um, and July 4th is typically celebrated as Independence Day. I'll wrap it up now, Adam. I won't go on for too long. Um, but um, that Independence Day was that um, was a day of freedom for white male Americans, uh, that all men shall be created equal was for white American men. Um, and this was to uh, divorce the colonies from the oppressive rule of the um, of the British. But it wasn't for um, it wasn't for black men. It wasn't for white or black women. It was only the Independence Day for um, white American males. And so this Juneteenth is another opportunity to recognize in this country that um, the that we're not free until we're all free. Um, this is something you find in Jewish tradition as well. We are not all free. We're liberated until we are all free. And uh, I think that that is one of the themes which has been um, occurring full force in the world right now. And it's a very important topic for the yoga communities as well. So I wanted to bring this up, wish everyone a happy Juneteenth, and um, turn it over to Adam now to begin. Thank you, Eddie. Um, yeah, so this is all down to Eddie. He, um, I had an, a certain idea, a slightly easier format but um, as always, he liked to complicate the issue and raised a fantastic point that what we need is a discussion. You know, we don't just want to hear the old stories again um, and, you know, or rehash the past. What we need is a collective, you know, discussion about what we're doing now relating to the past and the future, as Eddie said. So without further ado, as he said a lot of this background, let's get into the discussion and I'm going to start asking questions, and then we'll facilitate a little bit of debate, hopefully between the participants. Um, so, Dimitri, you're up first, <laughs> unfortunately. And um, the question I'd like to ask you is, how is the guru-shisha um, or student-teacher relationship relevant to our current day? Uh, thanks, Adam. You're welcome. Just uh, listening to Eddie. Uh, I felt again uh, like 20 years back. I had a dream. I, how he said, I have a dream. And the dream was to go to India and to find a guru. And now I 
felt it again, like that time. So it seems like it's still um, there. It's still kind of needed. It, of course, it can't be the same. Uh, that's why we're here. But it's still there. And our um, poll, which we uh, which we made through Google Forms for the Russian Ashtanga crowd, uh, showed uh, so almost the same. 60% of people said uh, yes to the question, I will travel to Mysore to practice with Guru at the first opportunity. Yes, for 60, even a bit more, 60% will go. 40 will go, but um, 40 will not go because of, you know, like they are fine to practice with local teachers and so on, etc. But in Russia, it's it's nice that Russia is uh, just the discussion because it's a kind of different uh, here. I mean, um, uh, politically, and um, and it's more like Eastern country than Western, somewhat in between. So people are here quite fine, <laughs> and they still have. Uh, so not much changed. And one of the things, one of the reasons, uh, about like 10% of Russians um, speak English enough, uh, good enough to get their general idea of the situation we are here, we are meeting, meeting here. So speaking, uh, how say, language better. So I can relate, but I'm also famous for being politically incorrect and so on. So it's better that I don't speak much. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Dimitri. Um, Thank you. Do you have any other thoughts or anyone else about the level of the, or the degree of instruction that can now be offered for a teacher? So I suppose my question is also about whether the guru is the same as, as, as it was. Can, can we expect someone to caretake our lives as perhaps we once did? And what does it mean going to a yoga teacher now? The degree of instruction, the amount of, amount of involvement they can have in our lives. Anyone else want to say anything about that? And there was a particular one-to-one -one relationship, Eddie. If you want to say something, please raise your hand. And David raised his hand. Yeah, you know, Texans always have something to say. <laughs> well, my personal belief is the guru is not a person. It's the practice itself. And I believe it's a mistake to look up to a person, be the one to guide us, because people are imperfect. The duty of the guru or the, or the teacher is to inspire, to encourage, and to facilitate the practice. Through practicing is where the student gains the learning. The teacher is there to facilitate the using of the tool, but it's a mistake, in my opinion, to view that person as the, the source, because even the teacher is just channeling to us information. But they and them, themselves should not be the, the idol to which we, we, we bow to. 
their duty is to encourage, inspire. So it, the teachers that are able to achieve that, that's a good teacher. But also a, a good teacher creates thinking students, but the best of teachers create students that don't need them anymore and can stand on their own. So that's all I, I wanted to say about it. I won't go on further. That's great. Thank you, David. Um, would anyone else like to comment? Um, I, I would be interested to hear if it's okay for me to ask, um, maybe if Deepika or Chandana would like to comment on that, since the guru tradition is a, is a Indian or Hindu cultural tradition. Um, it's not a Western cultural tradition. So just from um, a cultural perspective, either of your thoughts on the importance of the guru shisha tradition or parampara. So, um, can I speak? Please. Yeah. So I'm so, so, so happy to hear what David Swenson said. I'm talking softly because I'll be sleeping in the next room. Um, but I so agree with this because, you know, this is like, it, this is exactly how I feel. So for me, it was so incredible to hear David, you know, who I've looked up to for so many years saying that, because for me, I really feel like as a teacher, you know, our role is to hold space. Also being a mom, now my perspective has changed a lot. And, um, you know, I feel like maybe I have more empathy towards, you know, what maybe people are going through. And so maybe I, and I maybe there are days where I would not be able to know what somebody is going through, somebody who comes into the room. And so instead of um, holding authority, I would rather be the person to hold space and have empathy. So that, for me, that, that's exactly how I feel now. So I guess my perspective has changed a lot over the last few years. And I really resonate with that thought of being a person to inspire and hold space as opposed to being a space of authority. Shandana? Um, so I, um, I grew up, again, I'm in, still in touch with my English teacher. Like she still corrects if I make a grammatical mistake and everything. And uh, it's, it's what we, what I grew up was respecting, showing respect to the teacher. So we had to stand up the moment teacher came in and wish them good morning and, you know, wish them thank you when they left the class. But um, as David said, that um, holding someone to that pedestal, you know, because also what we are doing, we are also constantly learning. It's not that we have, we are done. It's, we are not the source. We are also gaining from the source and we are becoming a channel. Um, so it depends upon, I think the age we are at. Um, as a kid, I looked up to my guru, I looked up to my teacher and I'm still in touch with them. I still call them. But now it is always about seeing them as a guiding a guidance, um, seeing them somebody who is gonna lead me to what I wanna become as. So that is how I feel. So it's a special one-to-one -one relationship that's more than just the provider of information and they're guiding you 
in more than just giving you information. Um, Chandana, would you like to? Can you repeat the question again, Adam? Yeah. So I'm saying they're providing you more than they're just, they're not just giving you information, they're providing more of a sense of guidance or inspiration than that. Like exactly. Particular exactly. Like my English teacher, I was getting my, my report cards was like full of red marks and she's the one who actually identified the problem. And she asked my mother to back off and she took me under her guidance and whatever I gained in life, I owe it to her. So I will always hold her at a very high pedestal. So, you know, I, that is how I look as my teacher, look up to my teacher or my guru. So, yeah. Um, any of the other panelists want to make a quick comment before we move on to the next question? Just lost my questions, one second. Any other questions, answers, comments? <laughs> so, Tara, it's your question. Um, it's kind of a run on really from the first question. And what do we lose if we deny the traditional structures of the Hindu or yoga traditions? Okay, well, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist, so <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll uh, be, it is a bit of a, a run with that. So I think um, instead of talking about Hindu traditions, because that uh, can, can get mixed and confused, I think I'll prefer to talk a bit as um, almost like Vedic traditions, yeah? All of these come under the same branch. So the Veda Purana, you know, Bhagavad Gita, Sutras, it all will come under these yoga traditions. And um, as most of you already know, right, it's considered the manual for human life. So, you know, I feel like if we deny the tradition and we just want to have the outcome, then it's almost like, can I say, it's almost like um, having a fruit tree, yeah, and just taking the fruit and not watering that tree. So you have the immediate result, but then it just, they fade away quickly. And so if you, you don't last or care for that tree, right? Like you can go to the store, you can buy that apple easy. Yeah? Or you can plant the tree. So if you buy the apple, you're continually dependent on other people. So you have to keep going back to the store. Keep going back to the store. Yeah? Maybe they don't have the apple one day. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't work. Who knows? But if you plant a tree... Um, and you water the tree and you take care of the tree, then you have the fruits again and again. It keeps growing. It keeps, it's organic. It's natural. Yeah. And so um, I feel like it, a practice that's rooted within these traditions is incredibly important to find, find the depth, find the roots. Um, and uh, yeah, to, to, to gain the depths of our own practices. So it's not just staying on a surface level. Like how do we, how do we get to that, right? So if we follow Dharma, Dharma will protect us. Yeah. Almost like if we if we if we, if we don't practice, we won't be protected. 
Yeah, but it's similarly, how are we practicing and, and what are those practices? So, just my, yeah, I'm a, I, I do believe that having, um, saying under the lineage, and when I'm saying the lineage, I don't mean a specific person or an idea, I mean the deeper roots, yeah, the deeper roots of, of yoga, not just the physical asana, the gateway, as we come into it, it's what's beyond that. Yeah, all of the, if we're here, and where we're learning that from our teachers, um, rooted in these data yeah are they just reading a translated copy from a translated copy from a translated copy and that's what we're bringing in or is it coming from the roots so all of my yeah that's my my beliefs yeah. because yeah tradition never loses right we may lose tradition but tradition never loses do you think we should know the context of what we're doing does it make a difference if we know within the context of the asana what the roots are in terms of our aims and our intentions maybe towards the practice or can we just do asana and we'll get the results just doing it or do all we to know something about you know intentions otherwise it's just another just another way to progress in a kind of materialist capitalist kind of manner in some respects Tara, right, you go ahead first. It's your, your, your <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, sometimes it's just, it's where everyone's at. Where's the student at, right? So if someone's going to come in and say, I want to learn so you know, Mascara, you're not going to start throwing text at them and say, here, read this and this and this. It's, you know, first breathe, learn to breathe. <laughs> start slowly. Yeah, but at some certain points, I think uh, that roots need to come in. Yeah, some of the deeper, deeper practices, yeah. Mantras and yeah. So that's, that's my belief. I'll keep it like that. And jump back in if need be. So if anyone wants to take over, feel free. Then I'll ask any thoughts about that contextualization, the necessary contextualization of what we're doing. Or can we just practice and it'll just happen to us? Dimitri. <clears throat> you can imagine a simple situation that we, everybody can imagine like uh, teaching a new student. It's like when you teach him, you will say almost every one of you, or our listeners, Almost same, like ekam inhale, even not ekam, like inhale, arms up, and so on. You will teach him Surya Namaskar. But uh, me, or like you, or Eddie, anyone, example, will say almost the same words, but the feeling will be, I think, very different there. So, because the context, context, con context, which we are, how deep we are in it uh affects it's like you can say non-verbally the student it's like evidently will feel it might be even subconsciously how uh, how you're teaching from the deep yeah. or like just uh, you know like the drill it will affect you 100 percent so that's how i see the teaching these days when I teach new students, it still amazes me how it affects 
Yeah, I don't say that, oh, I went to Mysore, oh, I know this and that, but it affects, that's, for example, the context there. It's um effect. Thanks. That's it. Thanks. There's some good points there. Anyone else? Um, the question in the chat box. Oh, Chandana, go for it. You know, as Tara said, that the first time when a student comes in, um, we, we are going to start with Ekam inhale. But as Dimitri mentioned, the later, the intention of the practice is what matters. Like, why are you practicing? Where is this practice coming from? What is the meaning behind why are you doing this? What are you looking for? So, yes, traditions are important, but it has to be um, introduced to the student when they are ready. Uh, would uh, Wambui or Mark or Danny like to weigh on, in on this? Wambui, I see you nodding your head. <laughs> uh, uh, unmute yourself one more time, Wambui. There we go. Uh, the, you know, I like to be in a in a practice of um, if a question is 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 raised, it um, unravels a, more and more questions. Um, so that's something I've been doing in my personal contemplation is like trying to keep things in question form because then I feel it's just kind of a never ending uh, process of inquiry. Um, so one thing that's coming up to me is. Um, you know, how, how do we practice um, a lineage of yoga in what is essentially, at least in some parts of the globe, certainly in the global north, in the west, um, a post-lineage world? That's going to where we see this dynamic tension of um, the role of a guru in quite a position of authority versus a much more egalitarian approach. So that's something that um, I'm sitting with. And um, how how do we um, continue to honor and um, call in the roots of the practice, which um, have been stewarded by um, our South Asian kin? Um, while for me, context is extremely important, um, especially when we look at the socio-historical, political, cultural context from which these um, practices have come from. So um, keeping it contextualized is, is important to me. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ambeli. Um, sorry, in the chat box about the inspiration of the teacher, going back to our first point about the teacher and David's point about providing the information or disseminating the subject. Is there something more about, you know, a charismatic figure in your life, an inspiring figure? You know, and how charismatic should that figure be to risk um, overpowering your own discovery and the, and the asking of your own questions? Danny, do you want to make a comment on any of the above? Uh, as Mumbuis said, now it's um, it's very important to have like um, a guru, a person to guide you, but it's not a, like um, a principal part, you know, about the the path. So, but I think it is important to have a lineage 
No, it, it would be my 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 question, but um, I I think it is important. We, we live in, in like a, I live in Brazil. People don't know about Hindu religion or something. So the first impact I think is the asana, the physical part. But I think when they start to practice, everything's changed, like Chandana said. So you feel that the students start like like Dimitri said, you uh, can uh, exhale, we start to do these things, like the physical part. But when the students start to practice every day, when they, they build the sadhana, uh, everything changed. It, it's natural. They don't need to force them, themselves to do it. So I think this is, um, is important. But I think it's, the lineage is important to keep it. Just um, part. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Um, David. Thanks for every everything you guys are sharing. When we use the word tradition, I'm always fascinated to know what does that mean. What is the tradition? When Pitabi Joyce was alive, if you went to class one day with him and the next day with his son, Manju, and then with his daughter, Saraswati, and then with his grandson, Sharat, and then with Sharmila, his granddaughter, you just had five different experiences, right? Even when they were alive. And, and going further, when we say the tradition, the original tradition of yoga was meant for Indian-born male Brahmin kids. So the vast majority of us here, possibly all of us, would be eliminated from that possibility of even doing yoga. That was the tradition. So should we honor that? And it should only be for male Brahmin kids, right? So at some point, it becomes about the, the information and disseminating it and letting people choose. Yeah? So... Um, Honoring the tradition is going to be a little different for every one of us up here because we, we're individuals. We have a different experience. We each had a different relationship with the yoga. Some studied with Patabi Joyce. Some didn't. Some studied with Saraswati or Manju. So the tradition is not a cookie cutter. Yeah? It's not going to look exactly the same. And this is a bit paradoxical, which would be an interesting discussion at some point. The paradoxical nature of yoga. Yeah. So there's the tradition, but it's malleable. But then when it goes too far, is it still the tradition? And this is the, the paradox that we're playing with, yeah? To, to find the balance, yoga being meaning union. So somewhere in the middle of all of this is the unity that can encompass all of us with our different personalities and backgrounds and ages. And when we're all gone, Ashtanga will still be happening and who knows what it will look like. But um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Very good points. Very reasonable. Um, Eddie, yeah, I was going to comment um, yeah. and ask you. I'd just like to add in one thing. Um, David, thank you for those comments. And, um, uh, of course, everything you say about tradition and what it is and what it looks like, um, certainly, uh, I think we can all agree on. I just would like to um, suggest that the idea that the original intent of yoga was for young male Brahmin boys is not accurate. 
Um, and uh, I see this being repeated um, in different forms. But the, the yoga tradition um, from India has had many different types of um, gurus, representatives, and saints. There is a big tradition of female saints in India, which is not quite as well known. Uh, the Hatha yogis who were writing many of the texts were definitely not Brahmins because the uh, the not Sampradaya did not consider themselves to be Brahmins. They didn't even consider themselves to be Hindu in later centuries. Um, and um, if you look to some of the most inspirational uh, and uh, influential teachers of India, like Valmiki, Valmiki was a thief. Um, he was not a Brahmin at all. Uh, he was transformed through um, through his own tapas. And um, Gyaneshwar from um, from the who was a Marathi saint also was not a Brahmin. Um, so there's many um, different examples where deep yoga traditions uh, did not come from Brahmins, uh, did not come from men. But in later times, these prejudices seem to have come in. Perhaps a lot of it was from colonialism that seeped into India. Um, but I think that this is an aspect of the Indian history that uh, is, you know, when we talk about context and understanding where things come from, this is an important thing to, to understand about um, India as well. So anyway, I just, in the spirit of friendship and also education, I just wanted to add that in. Um, and, um, and I know that's not what you were getting at completely, but I don't want anyone to walk away from, with the wrong idea that that is, you know, the entirety of the yoga tradition of India. So I hope it's okay for me to add that in. Um, go ahead, David. I still love you, Eddie. <laughs> and and, I, and thank you for the clarification. But just if we look at the tradition of Ashtanga as far back as we can trace it, there weren't many women doing it, right? I know that you'll see some films of Krishnamacharya and and his couple of women, but for the most part, it was was men going going forward. That was more of my my point. But I embrace everything you said, and thank you for the clarification and. I'll turn it over to someone else. I think Tara had her hand up. Yeah, I think within Ashtanga Yoga, then, you know, we can, we should just, we can clarify. We're talking about this particular tradition. And, uh, of course, the, um, you know, when we, there's a very important movement of Dalits in India also who are not spoken about in the West, too, that should be um, uh, brought in at some point. Anyway, I'll be quiet now. That's all I wanted to add in. Tara, go ahead. No, I was just going to add because, uh, yeah, I love this. I love this conversation. Um, but that concept of uh, yes, Ashtanga, yes, absolutely, it's a completely different, and it started with, as far as I know, yeah, thing thirteen-year-old boys, young boys. But with Krishnamacharya, I just wanted to clarify because I spend a lot of time really studying deeply in that tradition continually, and. Uh, Krishnamacharya was was uh, the one. Those women, those are his wife and friends. He he promoted the the practice of women and also the practice of chanting for women, which was not discussed and not advised, and still is confused um, in many places. So, just wanted to clarify that because, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Tara. Um, 
all right, I mean, we're, we're circling around a nice thread of, of thinking and all the questions are just kind of hangers really to just have a discussion. So I'll move on and we'll continue kind of discussing the same thing, I think, in different forms. Um, Shandana, um, it's your, your question. And I'm, again, it's repeating the same old thing, really. Are we teaching anything other than yoga asana here then? Um, so, you know, yeah, I mentioned in my one line of bio that, you know, I twisted my life into straight lines and uh, um, I did, I did. And uh, this practice has like 2013, I faced something in my life, which was, which could have broken me, but I've, I learned how to overcome that. And I learned how to actually make my life that I wanted to live. And this was three years into practicing Ashtanga. Before that, I started my journey, asana journey in 2000, but it was just about, you know, taking a yoga mat and going for these uh, alternate day yoga classes. That is what I was doing for 10 years before that. Um, I actually understood who I was and what I should become. Like the fact that I was carrying this immense anger and that need for revenge it was, I, I just, and you know, I couldn't do anything about this thing because the, the person who did that to me will never be punished in this country. So I had a choice to make whether I become better in life by carrying all those negative thoughts and neg negative feelings, or should I just make a better life for myself? So I learned how to let go. So this is what I kind of learned more than just the physical part of this practice. So um, what I did was I asked a few of my students to share what they learned apart from the physical aspect of this practice. And with uh, permission from them, I just want to share a little tidbits from them uh, in this forum. So student S, um, she says, I still remember my first few weeks. I was so certain that there were poses from the primary series I thought I would never be able to attain. I was 100% certain about that. And then with that gentle confidence, you told me never say never. Of course, months later, I was comfortably doing what I once thought was impossible. This little lesson has helped me on the personal front too. I realized that just like my body, my mind too can become flexible if I train it too. For someone who resists change strongly, the faith in malleability of mindset is a huge blessing. Then student M um, this practice teaches me discipline, managing my nine to six corporate job, a home, preparing food, commute, health to be social, and life in general doesn't feel overwhelming. The practice taught me discipline to manage everything, taking responsibility of things and not get away with those that I don't like, just like I cannot get away with the asanas I don't like. Student you, better awareness of food habits, starting with being more mindful of the food I consume, eating on only when I'm hungry and reducing junk food intake, also enjoying what I consume with grace and happiness. Deeper breaths, calmer mind, thoughtful responses, and clarity in decision-making. Deeper connection between body and emotion, understanding energy blocks, and improved capability of working through them. Improved ability of silence, of to silence and slow down the mind, lesser spiraling and negative thoughts, stronger control over the mind. Then I have student N. The reputation in Ashtanga teaches you that not every day is the same, but the important thing is to show up. 
You show up, you step on the mat, and you just give it whatever you have that day. I think over time, this helped me to deal a lot with stress in life and in work. The feeling was reinforced that at the end of it, things will work out. I find, and I find that now it takes a lot more for me to get frazzled at work than it used to be before. So, you know, um, it's just like, you know, when we start joining the dots, when we start writing the letters, we always make a crooked line. But then slowly, as we set our intention, as we become more aware of ourselves, when we meet our limitation, when we meet our fear, when we meet ourselves, when we understand ourselves, we learn how to enjoy our cursive writing. So that is how I feel. That's it. That's very nice. Thank you. I think it's circling around this the same idea of tradition, really, and um, and how you would in, inform. I mean, when you're teaching the asana, or you're just teaching the asana, especially you, you're in India, or do you try and contextualize it? And then if you talk about tradition, what well, you know, like just as we're talking, how do you, you know, is it is it the Krishnamacharya or Patavi Joyce tradition, or do you frame it in a broader context, or do you do that at all, or do you just teach them the asana and that's it, and let them come to it? As I said, um, okay, I have never studied with Patabi Choice. So for me, Guruji has always been Shalak Guruji. Okay, so that's one thing. And uh, the way I was taught, I was always trusted that, okay, I, I, you know, I went to Mysore with a lot of limitations in my mind. Um, I did lack a lot of, I lacked a lot of things and slowly I overcame it. And when a, when a student walks into the class, it's not just about, okay, he or she is here to do yoga asanas and that's about it. There's a personal connection with the student and they have been with me for over four years now. So obviously this is not just limited to asana practice. There'll be more. In fact, it's, it's as David said, it's, it's about being, somebody being like a guide to them so no it's not just the asanas like the intention of why they are coming and why they are dedicating that one and a half hours to that to themselves or more should be made very clear and i constantly keep on reminding them why are you here how is this one and a half hours or two hours important for you understand that so i think it's more than that than the asanas That's great. I like that. Yeah. Let's, let's hear a little bit. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit from Mark. I see him keep on reaching over. Well, to no, I mean, Mark's got his, he's got his question. Let's let's we're I'm, we're we're also um slightly lagging in the time front. So let's let's move on to Mark's question. I think. And um, do you want me to read it, Mark, or do you know it? Um, how do we reassess so we will still retain some authority in the role of the teacher, so as to affect change in the student? <laughs> Yeah, so my apologies that it's, uh, it's almost 11 o'clock, way past my bedtime here. So it would have been much better if I'd had my coffee, but I'll do my best. <laughs> All right, let's see if Mark comes back in. Okay, Dipika's phone died. Yeah, well, this is our life at the moment, you know. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 
uh, for me, the one of the important words in that question is the role of the teacher. So, you know, in our lives, we all have different roles. So right now, my role is as a husband, as a father. Uh, I have my role as a son. I have a role as a boss to some people, a friend to others. And so sometimes I have a role as a teacher. And as we all, all of us who are teachers here, and I think that is the important thing to understand is that we go into those situations. It's like we, we play that role. People respect and, and they play their role within that relationship. And then once the class is over, then goes back to this, uh, you know, the, we're not being put on a pedestal. Uh, so, and, you know, the role is finished and we go back to being friends or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's probably been, you know, with what's happened in this younger tradition, the lineage over the last, you know, since 2017, after we, uh, after the whole Batavi Joyce scandal, I think, I think that really revealed to all of us that we had made that mistake of putting the teacher on a pedestal. And, you know, that's, uh, it's made us wake up to the fact that we can't do that anymore. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play as a teacher. You know, in order to learn something, you still need to give your respect to your teacher and put yourself in a position of being a student so that you can learn. So I, you know, I'm, whenever I go to learn something, I respect and honor the teacher and I put myself in that role of a student to learn. And when I'm teaching, I also expect the same thing from my students. But I think now, uh, you know, with what's happening in the world these days, I think one of the big uh, words that comes to mind or phrases that comes to mind is decentralized knowledge. Just like we have decentralized banking, decentralized information, uh, the same thing is happening in the yoga world as well. Like the, all the knowledge and power is no longer with the one teacher. Like for all of us, most of us here, I think, you know, it was, we had to go to India to get the information. Or we could go to David Swenson's DVD. <laughs> but basically, we had to go to India to get the information. But nowadays, really, it's that's not needed. You know, uh, the information is all there. Um, the transmission of it, that is something different. Mm. To really get the juice out of all that information, something different. I think you really need a teacher for that. And... I think, you know, when hopefully when the world opens up again and we can all learn from each other in person, I think uh, we're all going to value that role even more so, that personal, physical connection. But I think a lot of the hierarchy and authoritarianism, uh, a lot of that, uh, yeah, that's. I think a lot of that systemic stuff is going to fall away, and how how this tradition evolves with all of that, I'm not sure. It's you know we we'll have to wait and see. 
I'm really not sure how it's going to evolve. I know, uh, you know, for example, in our classes, we'll probably be more open to students developing their own practice in a sense, like uh, they don't want to necessarily follow the the primary series or the intermediate series. If they want to go off in different directions, then I think we'll be more open to that. Whereas before we were kind of like really within the system, trying to follow all the rules and yeah, somehow that doesn't feel right anymore. Uh, yeah, I've got, I could talk a lot more on this, but that's probably enough. That's now. good. That's good. I mean, very honest and it's, it's all, it's all, it's all good. I mean, I mean, what do you think about the authority then? You talked about authority and idea of role play. Um, that you know, it's essentially just a role play between two people, and then you go back to being friends or whatever. Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying that your your classroom is a very relaxed affair where you don't have much authority. You kind of allow the to, the, the student to be the teacher. No. Um, no, I, I think I can be uh, stern when I need to be. Any stern that is. No, I can be stern when I need to be. <laughs> Danny. Uh, I agree with Mark about the authority of the teacher. Uh, it's not a, you don't have to put your teacher in a pedestal, but the, the respect is really important. And about you don't need to go to India to learn, no, because now you have a lot of information, but sometimes you have to, 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 to be careful about how information you are looking for, you know, because nowadays you have internet, so everybody could can be a teacher. <laughs> so it's important to to find a person that is real, a person that practices, that uh, study in yoga. You no, know? so I, I believe uh, in parampara. I can we have Edister here, David Swanson, person, people that uh, Adam that. Um, Learn from Patabi Joyce, learn from good teachers and have the right information. So I'm sometimes I'm, I'm afraid about stu students that looking for many, many teachers or many information because everybody today can put something on YouTube. <laughs> and it, I think it's, it's, it's a kind of danger. So it's good to have like a source to person a teacher that you respect to to learn from 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 him or her that's it thank you danny that's a yeah and following on from that there's an interesting question in the chat box actually um someone's saying would well, you where is it do you guys do you guys feel there's some kind of responsibility to keep some kind of tradition i mean is that something that weighs on you i think that's a good question does anyone want to I mean, I'm looking at the chat box, by the way, anyone, so anyone that's watching, so please comment. That's a good question. Does anyone feel the, the weight of, of preserving something? And someone else mentioned in the chat box the idea that tradition should, we should come up with some version of our own tradition as a connection between each other. There's something that's quite hard that we're trying to do. And uh, we need some something. Anyone? Uh, while everyone is pondering that, I'll just pipe in about the word tradition for a moment. Um, the word tradition 
basically okay. means something which is done the same. Um, but it doesn't have to be done the same for a long period of time. It could be done the same for even one generation, and that creates a tradition. So the way that we use tradition in the in an English sense, uh, that word doesn't exist within the um, context of the spiritual tradition, traditions of, of India in the, in the same way. So um, the word for sampradaya or parampara, uh, all of these words, they don't really mean tradition. They mean something about, um, they, they, they refer to a stream of knowledge, which is being passed down in a particular way. And so when we go to a, a teacher of a particular parampara, or some pradaya, we are entering into their knowledge stream. And then when we follow what they, what they instruct, we're entering into that knowledge stream. And then that begins to work on us, transform us or whatever word that, that you want to use. So this is a little bit different than the word tradition, which simply means to do something the same because my grandmother made a pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving and then my mom made it and she taught me how to make it. And now it's our tradition to have that every year at Thanksgiving. That's tradition. It can be very, very mundane. There's a little bit. So there are two different senses. And there's a lot of um, uh, questions here in the chat room about what does tradition mean? So just to draw a distinction that as non-natives, and I, I know I'm, this is something I bring up a lot, but as non-natives, when we start using words, I'm talking about myself now, that do not equate with how language is used in these, if you want to call them Vedic traditions or Sanatana Dharma or the yogic traditions, slight different meanings will come in. We superimpose different types of ideas. So, um, so that's just, you know, the difference between a knowledge stream and a tradition. And um, then the last thing I want to say is um, that in our last 15 minutes or so, I know there are a lot of questions about um, what, you know, what does tradition mean? What does Mysore mean? What does the Guru mean? And the topic of our conversation was Ashtanga Yoga 2021, which is where we are now and beyond. So maybe as we go into the last few minutes, um, we can think about that like a little bit more like, what did we actually want to talk about here for Ashtanga Yoga 2021? Like, and all, you know, what, why did we want to do that? So I think everyone has said nice things about that so far, but just to hammer the, you know, the, the point home one more time. Yeah, it's a free space. It's a free space for people to, uh, you know, to, to create together, I suppose. Because um, also another word for tradition, certainly in the English culture, is conservatism. You know, keeping things the same. Something traditional is something that, you know, is kept the same. Um, and let's move on. We haven't got much time. So, David, you're up next. Um, would you like to speak on the purpose and role of adjustments? Yes, I'll just first make a comment on the on the previous. We have to understand what what is the foundation of the practice we're doing before you can understand what you're trying to retain. Yeah, and personally, I break it down into what I call the five elements of practice. Ashtanga encompasses certain things. We have drishti, we have bandhas. We have specialized breathing techniques. We have a particular sequencing of asanas, yeah? And we have vinyasa. So when you combine those things, to me, that can form the tradition or the word or the recipe for, for mom's, you know, pumpkin pie, but that's the recipe. This is choreography. Um, my wife works in the world of dance. If she's staging a ballet, it has certain steps. So 
primary series is what it is. It's choreography. Um, tai Chi practitioners practice the same sequence for the rest of their life. They don't mix it up and suddenly make turbo Tai Chi or whatever. So there's elements within that, but even within that structure, there, there's space and room for personal expression. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, and I'll, I don't want to spend a lot of time because I really wanted to hear from the other people more than hearing myself talk, but touch is human. It, it's human to touch. Yeah, it's it's been part of our tradition. Adjustments are wonderful. You don't have to use so many words. Yeah, it's one of the benefits. If you try to tell someone, push down the the base of your index finger. The index finger, that's the finger between your middle finger and your thumb. The base of it is where the corner of your thumb, or you just touch there and say, press down here. You didn't have to use so many words. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's a connection. It's humanity. I miss touch, yeah? This is great. I'm happy for this opportunity, but I miss being in the room with you guys. I even miss the funk of the smell in the room. Yeah, there's an essence. There's the reality, yeah? And granted, we, we didn't have to get into the whole thing of, of how to adjust, but there's a role. It plays. It's a, it's a real connection. I have wonderful memories of, adjust, of, of adjustments, and I've, I've gotten feedback in the same way. If we look at an adjustment as a, a, a method or a, a way of creating a muscle memory, great, it creates a memory. Good adjustment is a good memory. Bad adjustment, bad memory. So if someone is abused or injured or, or damaged, it's a bad memory. But it doesn't mean that adjusting was bad. When my mother was 80 years old, her back was bothering her. She went to a chiropractor and the guy broke six of her ribs adjusting her body. Does it mean that chiropractics is bad and no one should ever go to a chiropractor? No, it just means this guy made a bad adjustment. You know, it was incorrect. So my feeling is we just have to learn how to be respectful. And if any of you have ever been to a Mysore class with me before class, I always announce, I've been saying this for 20 years. If you need an adjustment and I don't see that you want my help, you get my attention, I'll come help you. On the other hand, if I come to adjust me, you and you don't want my help, you tell me to go away. Empower the student to have a voice, yeah? Empower the student. Too much power is in the hand of the teacher that the student is frightened. And there's this movement now in the world of, and I was in this meeting in a, a big, in, in London, and the teachers were all together and they said, well, with all that's going on, we've come up with an idea. We're going to place cards on the mat. The student that does not want to be adjusted, I don't know what the card is. Maybe it's like a, a hand with a red line through it or something, but it's a card that when that's there, it says, don't adjust me. And they said, that will empower the student. I'm not a fan of that. I say, no, it's not. You're enabling the student. That's where the problem, when they say, yeah, but the student's intimidated to speak to the teacher. And I said, and that's where the problem is. Why is that there? Empower the student to know that they can look at the teacher and go, no, I don't want that. Yes, as, well, as Mark is saying, Within, there's, there's a, there's a teacher-student relationship, but there's boundaries to that, yeah? If the teacher is harming the student, the student has to speak up. What's that person going to do out in the world? If we look at the mat as a microcosm for life and our practice and how we deal with, with our, our life on the mat helps life in the world. What are we going to do out in the world? Someone is abusive to us. What do we do? We pull out a little card and wave it at them? No, we empower. It's training for life. 
So yes, make adjustments, be respectful, get the student to give feedback, and then it's wonderful. So I'll stop there because I don't want to go on and on. And I know we're probably signing off soon. Just before we do, I say, you guys, this is great. I love you all. Thank you for letting me participate in this. It's an honor, and I want to hear from other people. Thanks, David. So do you ask someone now, David, when you adjust them? Has, has your, have your, has your um, idea of adjustments changed over the years? I mean, you've done it so long. Have you changed your, your, the way you adjust or the, the way you approach an adjustment? It would be interesting to hear that. It, are you asking me, Adam? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I've run these teacher training courses uh, for years, 20, 30 years, and I, and I always teach the, the, the same way. I have a list of things you have to look for. That, you know, like, where do we adjust? And I've been saying this since I've been doing these trainings, probably 25 years. I say you, you always avoid the high voltage regions of the body. Certain places, if you touch them, you're electrocuted, so you avoid those areas you don't touch, you know? You communicate, you ask, you look in, you understand, and what is the purpose behind adjusting? So my approach has always been the same. The, the, I look at myself in a MISO room like an asana waiter. I'm the servant. Mat number seven needs marichyasana D. And I, I serve them marichyasana D. I present them the asana, but it has to be done with respect. My goal isn't to just cram them in there and bind their hands. My goal is to facilitate their practice. I'm serving the needs of the student. The teacher is actually the servant of the student. We're there for their benefit, not for my ego, to make me all feel puffed up. Yeah? So, um, my, my approach has always been the same. So, I haven't... I've always had this attitude about, and I understand there's heavy-handed adjustments or miscommunications and missteps and things, but it doesn't mean adjusting's bad. It's just something went wrong in the, the lines of communication where it became one person was just imposing on the other. Like the waiter comes out and goes, I don't care how you ordered that food. This is what you get. Oh. It's not like that. We're, we're there to, and it has to be sincere. But again, there's, there's, a, there's a respect, and this is the balance we, we walk between teacher, student, and there needs to be some control, but with respect. Thank you, David. Um, I'm conscious time is getting on. I think if you're watching in the audience, I think we'll probably approach this question again in some form or fashion in the next panel that's coming on. Um, but I want to stick roughly to time, so um, Wambui has the last question today. Okay, so <clears throat> trying to get this all in. Uh, Eddie, I'm really glad you brought up Juneteenth, and I do just want to take a moment to read this real quick. The Senate unanimously voting to make Juneteenth a holiday should confuse you. Um, so and so reminded us, this is an Instagram uh, handle, reminded us that gaslighting is making Juneteenth a federal holiday while simultaneously attacking black voting rights, endorsing state sanctioned violence, dismantling the social safety net and passing laws to prevent schools from telling the truth of our racist history. Don't be fooled. We've got work to do. May Juneteenth be a call to action to never stop until we're all free. So there's that, just further complicating. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, my question on tradition, how should it be presented so as to retain some characteristics of a structured method 
while also allowing for greater inclusivity and autonomy. Um, I'd like to uh, just set the tone. Um, the, the question of diversity and inclusivity has always been on my mind since I started um, the practice about 13 years ago. Eddie can attest to this when he came to visit um, in the early, like 2011s, that um, time that I was, this was on my mind. Um, and so in, in 2018, 2019, as I was thinking, well, how can I get more Black Indigenous people of color in Finland to come and do this amazing transformative uh, lineage of yoga that's been so beneficial for me? How can I share all this like beautiful um, transformative healing medicine that has uh, helped me. Um, I was, we, Petri and I, on our website, uh, when they went to look at our website, um, we were accused of spreading casteism and Brahmanism in progressive Finland, right? And so Ashtanga Yoga has been a very hard sell for the BIPOC uh, here in Finland. And so that just, I was really confused because I was like, <laughs> you know, just kind of, um, in the lineage following the parampara, really just doing what I thought constituted being a good student and a conscientious teacher, right? But it really got me like um, asking questions, questions, questions. Um, and those are the ones I'm going to just offer that we can sit with. Um, something that has come in my mind is that we are living and practicing and teaching this lineage-based yoga um, in a very polarizing time between Hindu phobia on one hand and Hindutva on the other. And so where are we with that? And that's why I was really grateful for Eddie for speaking to the nuances within Hinduism um, itself, because things get very sort of uh, flattened and we get just dominant narratives on either side. Um, so nuance is super, super important. Certainly a trauma-informed approach to even something that is traditional or lineage-based is gonna be um, from here on out, certainly something that I and Petri are practicing. Uh, David spoke to that in terms of empowering students. Um, Mark has spoken to that in terms of a, a less hierarchical approach to the role of the teacher. So that speaks to some of the trauma-informed and not just trauma-informed, but trauma-responsive principles that I'd like to see in our yoga spaces. So harm happens. Um, we, we just don't think about it and talk about it and know about it, but we actually have like a praxis. We have steps to take to make sure right relationship is, is um, returned. And it's hard, it's hard. 2020 was this big year of racial reckoning, right? Everybody woke up. Where are we in terms of action um, uh, in 2021? It's slow. So we are maybe more racially aware as a society, but not too much equitable action on a deeply structural level has happened. So this is gonna take some time. Um, what else? How to make, rather than safer spaces, how to make softer spaces in our yoga practice that takes into account our aspirations for a just and equitable, diverse society, especially one that's pluralistic, not assimilationist, right? And I will just say like, where does yoga stop and Hinduism begin? And what do we do with that in terms of um, a religiously diverse um, student body? Like, I'm just thinking like, what's happening in India, no Muslim is going to want to come into an Ashtanga yoga class because that's going to be triggering. So 
how do I work with that? Um, it's a lot. And that's what I'm trying to um, envision and imagine. Like, maybe not safer spaces, but softer spaces. What does a softer space look like um, as well, where speaking truth to power is not a big, scary thing and where taking accountability is not a big, scary thing. And these are things that we have trouble. Obviously, in the macro society, it's not going to be much different in the macro society of our yoga spaces. Oh, I tried to pack it all in. <laughs> that was good. That was really good. And very positive um, comments in the chat box. And thank you, Wambui. Um, and I think we'll we'll carry that on. I think you've raised some really important points there. Um, uh, wonderful. And um, well, I suppose I would like to stick to time. And, and uh, we've got our next panel in 10 minutes, more or less. So I just want to say um, thank you, everyone, for coming. And I'll leave Eddie to say one little final note. And, uh, and thanks again for the audience for listening and some great interaction. We didn't expect such good questions interaction there as well. Thank you. Um, great. So thank you all very much, participants, for all your comments and questions and um, all of the teachers who are here speaking today. Uh, Wambui, that was a fabulous summation of everything that was said today, as well as your own thoughts. So thank you very much for, um, for bringing that to us. Um, and um, we hope that we will continue. If this is useful for people uh, and you enjoyed this, then we would like to do it again. You can let us know if that seems like a good idea to you, teachers and participants as well. And we'll keep on um, you know, bringing in uh, other teachers and other voices. There are people we invited who couldn't make it. We'll invite them again for, for next time. But um, deep appreciation for all of you. Uh, I'd say probably the last final closing thing I would say is that um, I think David's summation of what is tradition in regards to Ashtanga Yoga as his, the five elements he spoke of is a good thing for us to hold on to. Because when it comes to entering into a yoga practice or a spiritual practice, the first thing we want to know is what should I do? I'm suffering. Something's not right in my life. I'm looking for healing. I'm looking for peace. What should I do? We need something to do. And this is a very wonderful format. And then by doing it, something happens. So uh, when we look at the word tradition within Ashtanga Yoga, we might be talking about, this is a suggestion, this type of a format that David was, was speaking of, these five elements of the sequences, the breathing, the looking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, add a little bit of gratitude and awe on top of that, and it's a pretty good recipe. Uh, and then put in top of that all the questioning that Wambui brings in, um, then that's very important too, because as soon as we think we don't have any more questions, uh, then we might think we know everything, and that's a dangerous place to be. So I will stop there. Thank you all very much. And everyone who's staying for the next panel, thank you. Everyone who's leaving, Thank you. And all the teachers here, you guys were all phenomenal, amazing. Thank Love you. It. So a few minutes break and then we'll see you at 430. Thank, Thank you, Adam, Adam and Eddie, for organizing this. And thanks to all of you. Love. Respect. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.